Turn, if you will, to John 2. John 2. We're doing studies in uh, John, not necessarily sequentially. <laughs> we're in John 3 last few weeks. Now we're going to go to John 2. Uh, I thought I would just go over this because I don't know what it means anyway. And I didn't know what it meant because it didn't take any time to find out. When you take, have you ever found a, a difficult verse you read one time and said, I don't know what it means, so I'll never read it again? It'd be nice if you'd study it. Once you find out the meaning, it's a treasure. And so I think I have the final word on it today, and I want you to turn there. Uh, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. John never mentions her name. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. He has five of them now. He picked them up in John 1, five disciples. So Jesus comes with five men with him. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what have I to do? What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So that'd be 180 gallons max. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk, and, and one translation is when people are semi-drunk, is the idea. When you're, when you're half soused, you, you've, you lose your taste buds. You're not too picky. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. Let me uh, just, first of all, walk you through a little bit of the uh, setting and maybe the narrative issues. One thing, he says, this is the first sign Jesus did. It was the first miracle. He did 35 miracles recorded in the four Gospels. John picks eight. And John tells you at the end of the book, I picked these eight miracles, and he uses the word sign, Simeon. And uh, in the book of John, he calls them either signs or works. I came to do the works of the Father. But when he says it's a sign, he wants you to know that it is a miracle with a message. That, that, that's the way I memorize it. A sign miracle doesn't mean he wants you to just be kind of, ah, 
oh, that was great. He healed somebody. Ooh, ah. He said, no, no, that's the surface meaning. Turning the water to wine, that's surface. You, you don't have to be real smart to say, ooh, that's pretty impressive. But you will have missed why John used it and why it's called a sign and what the message is. The message is not Jesus is in the wine business. Some of you were hoping he was. Call him to all your parties to make up the lack of booze. Uh, no, 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 no. That, that's sir. And by the way, the wine of that day, it was an interesting because as a whole, the average people, they weren't drinking 100 proof. Uh, some like scholars like D.A. Carson said it was one part wine, 10 parts water. Other scholars say it was one part wine, two to three parts water. Because you didn't have East Bay mud, you had no filtering system, and there is such a thing as amoebic dysentery when you drank bad water. So the fermentation and the alcohol was about their only preventive from picking up uh, microscopic creatures that can make you sick. So that wine was a great benefit. But they broke it down because they were just average folks. They didn't, they didn't have a lot of money. So the drinking wine of the day was enough to ferment to be a, a health issue. And it was what they used. He comes here and uh, brings the five disciples, comes to a uh, wedding, and the embarrassment thing is that they uh, run out of wine. Actually, according to Jewish law, you could sue a family at a wedding that ran out of the food. You're supposed to know how many show up, how many will be there, and any embarrassment of such a nature as that, they could sue them legally, if you could imagine. And so it was a great embarrassment to be running out of wine, and Mary picks this up. She wants to save the family disgrace and shame in a shame culture, and so she calls her son in to help out. Now, here's what's interesting. This is the first miracle that he did because we have Christ living up in Nazareth for 30 years, and in 30 years, he did no miracles. And Joseph, the father of Jesus, the stepfather, since God really fathered him through Mary. Uh, Joseph passes off of the gospel narrative early, so many uh, speculate that he could have died by the time Jesus was a teenager. Jesus, being the eldest son of Mary, would be the guardian and the provider for her in the carpenter shop. And so for 30 years, he's living, as it were, an ordinary life in obscurity. We see Mary at her purification. We see Jesus going to the synagogue and reading Isaiah. We see Christ uh, being circumcised. And those early childhood events, the flight to Egypt. But we've got just years. Where is God? Where is Christ? We thought he came in flesh. He's totally veiled for 30 years. And at this wedding is his coming out party. I'm going to begin to show you why I came, and I'm going to go public, and I'm going to tell you that the Creator God is among you, and now he's going to start doing things for the rest of his three years on the earth before he dies. And 
he's going to start showing what he's about. Now, one of the problems we have here, some scholars are upset that when Mary told Jesus, hey, they've run out of wine, and he very abruptly comes back, woman, what business are you having trying to get me involved in this wine business? See that? Woman, what does this have to do with me? And this is the beginning of the separation between the son and Mary. From now on, Mary, I'm on the father's business. I've been your eldest son. I've been there, and you've harbored the whole story of my beginning with you, and you know I'm going to bring you sorrow ultimately when you watch me die on the cross. But now a separation is coming. I'm on a different mission, and I do not answer to your beck and call about anything from now on. I'm carrying out the Father's will. And so you see this starting. Some take the word woman there as not disrespectful because even on the cross, he said to John, he said, woman, he speaks to his mother even from the cross, woman, and some take it to be the equivalent of the South's ma'am. You know, do you ever hear anybody say, yes, ma'am? Not in California, do you? What do you want? No, no, but I, I grew up with that, yes, ma'am. So it seems disrespectful, but it's abrupt. There is a sharp demarcation coming now in the relationship. Woman, why are you involving me in seeing that they have wine at a party? I'm not about this. Well, why? Mary, have you forgot my mission? And I would think she had after 30 years. And then he says, my hour has not yet come. And when he uses this over and over, the hour means the cross and his glorification. My, my hour, I'm not to be hired out to solve emergencies. That's not what I'm about. And so Mary picks up what is said, and she simply says, do whatever he tells you. Whatever he wants you to do, do it. So she submits. She immediately gets it. And she said, no argument. Whatever he wants you to do, please do it. Well, they go, and they have these stone jars, 30 gallons apiece. That, that's a large jar. That's doing pretty good for ceremonial cleansing. And so the servants are told, fill them to the brim, and the max, 180 gallons. Now imagine having 180 gallons of wine at a party, and they've already drank a lot. So this is some miracle. And the miracle was not when they put the water in it. It was as they ladled it and put it in the containers to serve the people. So who knows? They may have filled them all with the water, and the only thing that turned to wine is what was served. And the other could have been thrown out as water. But we know this. He turned the water into wine. This was his first miracle, his first sign. So what in the world are we to get out of a miracle where Jesus turns water to wine? What is that in the book for? Well, I pick up four things, and uh, let's just consider them. The first thing I get and think of the message is that um, Jesus Christ, the creator God, alone has the power to change his creation. Christ alone, his creator, has the power to change his creation. 
Now, it's as though God steps off the throne in Christ and comes to a race that has rebelled against him. It's lying in ruins. He sees uh, the whole earth that was at one time a paradise. He sees deserts. He sees thorns. He sees diseased people, dying people. It's like you watching the TV and they have a documentary of a, a poor child uh, with a runny nose uh, sitting next to a garbage dump and they say, send your money to help us. It's one thing to see it on TV. It's another thing to touch the little boy at the garbage dump. Christ had been seeing the ruin of the race from the throne. He is now come in among the race, and he comes, and when he comes to this problem, and he exerts his power as the creator power of God, he's saying, I'm coming to a creation that needs to be retouched by the creator. I'm coming to a creation that uh, can only be transformed, and I'm going to show you throughout my ministry, I am the transformer. I am the change agent. When I touch the leper, they get well. When I touch a dead man, he comes alive. When I speak to the blind, they see. The creator is among us. All things were created by him, and now he's among us to begin a new recreation of fallen man. That's the first thing I see. I'm among you as the creator God to transform what you give me. Two, uh, I think it's interesting that by the time Christ visits, uh, this may be stretching it, but you'll let me do it, I know, because you haven't studied it anyway. It's as though Christ is visiting a party and they run out. Uh, when you study what the significance of wine is, wine in the Old Testament represented uh, joy, even the Messiah invites people in Isaiah 55, oh, everyone that's thirsty, come to me and let him drink. He that's hungry, come to me and enjoy wine. It was a picture of joy, of exhilaration, of a messianic age. Uh, it had loaded symbolism in, in the uh, Old Testament literature. And yet Christ is in a setting where uh, the supplies have run out, where the party is dangerously uh, in danger of embarrassment and emptiness. And some way the setting uh, speaks to me of what the Creator found when He came to the earth. Men, uh, the party was over. The joy was over. Sin had done its work on the race for years. And something that you can never dream of, running out of resources at a wedding, running out of that which was to give the uh, enough wine to feel good, to, to take you out of yourself, enjoy. And it's as though Christ comes and visits the earth just as the Titanic is taking its final plunge. We've been partying on the deck for the whole journey, ever the journey from Eden, our rebellion, seem, we seem to be getting away with it, but he comes in the fullness of time at the right time, and when he comes, the whole race is aware we've lost the joy of our humanity. We're far, far from God. 
Uh, we're empty. Uh, we've run out. We're running down. We, the joy of life is gone. We need the Creator to do something if we're ever to get our joy back that we had way back from Eden on. For ever since the garden, man's been in exile. He's been running from God, running from God. He's not at home. He feels a, on a cold day, a windy day. You could stand out sometime with the wind, and if you're in the Midwest and the lightning and the weather, you could just see a groaning creation said, it wasn't always this way. There was a time when creation had no thorns, when creation was happy and dancing, and there was no sin in the world. There was no curse upon the human race, no curse upon the ground. But he said in Romans 8, all of creation is groaning together even until now. We run out of the joy of life. To live in this world without Jesus Christ is to end in a joyless party that has no meaning. It's why, uh, you, you ever ask yourself, what, had, what made us all of a sudden become a drug culture? What, what, besides Vietnam, when the boys brought it back from the war, really exploded? Because when you're sitting in a foxhole out in Vietnam and you can get a joint, why not have one? You think you're going to go home in a body bag anyway. Uh, you know what? It makes sense for a man to get drunk when all of life is pain. His wife has left him. His kids are in rebellion. And his mother's dying. Where do you go for relief in a fallen world where it seems the party's over? Drugs make sense. Give me something to blow my mind. And you literally are blowing your mind. Because I need relief. I'm in pain. It's a terrible thing to be a lost sinner in a world without hope and without the wine of the Spirit and without the wine of divine provision and just living in the barren waste of this world's journey. It's a horrendous thing. The party ends, and in the place of it, we try to drown our sorrows with a thousand different intoxicants. Jesus comes to a party that has run out. He comes to a party that is tragically on the end of shame and embarrassment. We just don't have any more supply. And I, in my own mind, think, what a time for him to pull off his first miracle. When the supplies have run out, when panic is running through the guest uh, halls and the, the bridegroom and his parents who are to foot the bill and the supply, we run out and Jesus shows up. And the supply maker and the change agent and the transformer steps in. I think something I see here, thirdly, is that uh, when Christ comes, he is able to take the ordinary and to make something extraordinary out of it. He's able to take the ordinary and make something extraordinary out of it. Otis Wiley loaned me a tape no, not, it was either Otis uh, or uh, uh, their pastor, Earl, that uh, loaned me a, a sermon by E.K. Bailey. And E.K. Bailey grew up in Oakland, became a marvelous preacher. And uh, 
He was preaching about meeting Christ, had gotten into trouble, had his rough years as a teenage boy, getting off the streets of Oakland and uh, surviving different things. But then he started talking about his life and when he felt the call of God in his life. And uh, he was saying, I, all I can say is I met him and he took the ordinary. He, and he would say he took a boy from the streets of Oakland and he did a job in my heart. He took me from ordinary to extraordinary. He took me from a life that was headed for maybe all kinds of disappointment, no telling what the trouble could be. But I met someone that could just take ordinary humanity, and when you lay it in his feet, he's able to work a miracle in the heart to change you. I think of Scott Thompson that grew up in this church, a drummer boy. He said all he was about, he went to De Anza or El Cerrito High, all Scott said he was about was girls and drums. And he was a marvelous drummer. I went to one of his last concerts. And he uh, came to our youth group, got saved, I think maybe seventh grade, eighth grade, grew up, broken home, lots of pain. And he said uh, he hated a birthday. He said, I hated my birthdays. And I said, and how was that, Scott? He said, because in the eighth grade, I couldn't read the birthday card. All I did was date girls and play drums and skip classes. I had no, no ambitions to do anything. Girls and drums. He got saved and became an avid reader. Went to Grace School of Theology at the church at the time, graduated from Dallas in the ministry today. The boy that couldn't read had to pick up two to three languages to graduate from Dallas. What made the difference? Christ found an empty boy and all the joy of life was gone. Watched his mom and dad break up watch alcohol, nearly destroys parents. And he met this transforming Christ that can take the ordinary and make something extraordinary. The fourth thing I see here uh, is that uh, men and women are likened in the Bible to vessels or containers. And... Uh, here Jesus says, fill the containers with the water and I'll transform it. I could change it. I want you to think of your own life and let me ask you right now, what do you contain? What are the goods contained in you? What kind of container are you? The contents of your life is more important than the quality of the vessel because some of you are cracking. Some of you have got aches and ailments. And, and, and if you don't, let me tell you, young people, you're going to get them. <laughs> and we're going to be standing there saying, we told you it happened. Rambo, you ain't always going to be Rambo. Someday you're going to look like Jumbo. <laughs> you're going to have to help you in the building. Because the old containers wear out. But you see, it's not what the container is made of, it's what it contains. 
Howard's never threw out a peanut butter jar when I grew up. That's what you drank milk out of. Anybody ever keep a peanut butter jar? Come on, I'm talking to a wealthy crowd. You don't know what I'm too proud to say. We kept, man, that was our top silverware and top glassware. Fruit jar, as long as it could hold milk, who cares what it's made of? We weren't looking for fine china. You gotta be kidding. We were looking for fine food. Some folks got better silverware than we had anything to eat. But you kept the jar, and who cared? I just need something to hold the glass of milk. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. I want you to go with me on a journey. Start with me, Jeremiah. Jeremiah 18, what he said about the nation of Israel. And think of our own lives. Listen to what he says. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Arise and go down to the potter's house. And there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. And he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so you are in my hand, O house of Israel. And he goes on to tell them, I tried to mold you and to shape you into something usable and honorable, but you wouldn't listen to me. And I've had to break you down. When that clay gets on that wheel, when there gets some kind of a stone or unyielding, maybe not enough water in the clay, whatever, a lump that won't yield, something going on, what does that potter do? When it won't yield, you keep trying to get it, boom, you break down the clay. You put it right back down on that wheel. We'll start over. Israel, in my hands you fell apart. In my hands, you didn't yield to what I, I, I've had to break you down, and I'm going to make you over because you wouldn't yield to the potter's hands. And so the nation refused to be changed, and they go far, far from God. Look at what Romans 9 says. Romans 9. Look there. He talks about God's sovereignty that he has mercy on whom he will have mercy. And you hear 919, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. Listen to that. The same quality of clay, but two different kinds of vessels, honorable, dishonorable. What if God, desiring to show his wrath 
and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. There's only two kinds of, really one kind of clay and two destinies. One person that you grew up with, as flesh of flesh as you, as weak, smart, good-looking, whatever, just human, humanity. And God takes the clay, and he shapes it. And he said, one is fitted for eternal destruction. And the other winds up eternally with God. One is a vessel of wrath that resists the potter's hand, that winds up being fitted for destruction. And over here is another vessel, a vessel of mercy. Its end design is a result of the merciful intent of the creator potter. I want you to know, none of us are any better humanity than those who are not with us. There's no better clay in the room. The difference is the potter. Your humanity is as bad as anyone else's. Your quality of humanity is as desperately in need of God as any other's. It was the fact God was willing to get involved in your life and make something out of you that you could have never been on your own. You see, he takes the clay, and he can shape you, mold you, and even determine your eternal destiny. And he says to humanity, don't tell the potter what he can do with the clay. I ask you, what has he done with your life? Why aren't you being destroyed today? Why doesn't he give up on you? Why does he turn us preachers into beggars, begging you to come to Christ? And you still won't let the potter get his hands on you for good, and so you will be fitted for destruction. And this is the theme he carries over to Romans 12, because... God has been merciful, and you become a vessel of honor because of mercy's designs. Why don't you serve him with everything you've got? One of our precious men was sharing at our deacon elder meeting how someone was sharing with them, I don't know that I can be 100% for God. I don't, you know, that's a little too carried away. You know, he might make a missionary out of me. Well, probably a lot more than what you are now. There's no such thing as 50-50 for God. All he wants is all of you. And if he gets all of you, believe me, honey, he hadn't got a whole lot. Get over it. Listen to the Eagles play that song. Get over it. Get over it. Quit looking in the mirror. Man's problem is he's stuck on himself. Someone said he's nothing but dirt stuck on himself. He's a mud pie. And he's trying to play God and making a mess out of creation. But the potter, the difference is some of you, you know when his hands got on you. 
And he said, I've got a merciful design for you. I'm not going to give you what you deserve. I want to give mercy. Let's keep going. Uh, look at 2 Timothy. When he talks about, I understand it to be the household of faith, but it scares me what he says. But look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. He's talking to the young pastor at Ephesus who has struggled with timidity and uh, uh, different pastoral problems. And, and he's telling the young man, don't, don't be discouraged. Don't let false teachers get you off track like Hymenaeus and Philetus. Don't be distracted, Timothy. Uh, don't get caught up in vain debates and endless discussions. And so he, he's talking to his son in the faith. Don't watch yourself. Take care of yourself. And then he, he makes this marvelous uh, illustration, verse 20. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. What is he saying? I, I understand the household here to be the household of faith. And that's what scares me, that there's actually could be people in the household of faith that their only use is dishonorable. I mean, that, that's what my trouble. I, I wish he would say the household of humanity, and then I would say, well, the dishonorable are unbelievers, but I'm not sure that's what he's saying. It seems to be the household of faith. I'm willing to be corrected, but that's what it, he's saying. In the household of faith, uh, cleanse yourself. Don't get caught up with these heretical teachers. Don't get caught up with all this, the riffraff that goes on in church life. In every church, you've got a murmuring crowd. They'll always murmur about something. In every church, you've got people practicing sin that nobody knows about. And uh, sometimes you're on the board, sometimes you're in the choir, sometimes you're in the pulpit. And uh, they're, they're living in sin. Nobody knows. And they, they shine for a little while, and all of a sudden, we hear a big fall. But he's telling Timothy, in this big house, and one of the most common things I know of is vessels of dishonor, were normally five-gallon uh, vessels, usually made of clay. They'd last about a month. It's pretty cheap. And uh, what you did, if I went to your house and you washed my feet, you wouldn't take that water that you'd wash my feet, and just throw it out. Since water was such a precious commodity, they would take that excess water from washing the feet, and they would pour it in this vessel of dishonor. And they'd collect that water, and out of that water, they'd water their plants and things that they could use that water for. And, but this was considered the vessel of dishonor, uh, almost like a chamber pot uh, when you don't have plumbing. Uh, we've got to have a vessel that we use for dishonorable usage, but it has a use. And these vessels would last about a month. Slime would form in it. 
The, the, the uh, ostrica would begin to break, and cracks would develop in it. And so every month you'd have to replace these vessels. But it was a vessel of dishonor. But, but he says, there's vessels of silver and gold. Now, you don't throw your wastewater in silver and gold. Uh, if you have guests, you serve them in the best vessels you have. If you've got silver, use that. Gold, use that. And so he says, hey, there's two kinds of vessels in the household. Then he says to Timothy, Timothy, if you're willing to get clean, if you're willing to separate yourself from the riffraff, the soiling effects of this world, if you'll flee, he says right after this verse, flee immorality. See, in the context, he's saying, flee sin lest it dirties you so God can't use you for honorable use. You see, you can see all the pornography you want and still be a child of God. God's just not going to use you because God's got to work on you before he can work through you. You can be a gossip and a murmur and a negative. Oh, ever. We got them in this church, always had them. They've got them in every church. They had them in the wilderness journey. They wanted to kill Moses. They didn't like what they were doing. Didn't like where they were going. Always got an opinion. God, an opinion. God, an opinion. I want to ask, what is God doing with you? Besides critiquing leadership, don't you have more to do, honey? I'll tell the story about the man that told me one time he's getting ready to leave the church and he was upset over something. Uh, you know, I don't think God's using you anymore, Pastor. I said, Well, uh, how long have I been your pastor? And he told me how many years. I said, The issue in your life is not whether God's using me, it's when is he going to use you? Is God using you? Is he using you for anything honorable? If someone needs encouragement, would he use you? If someone needed their hands lifted up, would he use you? If somebody needed mercy, could he use you? If somebody needed a word from God, could he use you? Are you clean enough for the Spirit of God to give pure water? I don't want, I don't mind drinking milk out of a fruit jar, but it better be washed. I just wanted to be clean. I don't care about how fancy it is. And when God's going to meet my need, he doesn't send me a dirty brother. And he won't send a dirty sister because in this household, Timothy, you've got to make a choice. Are you going to stay clean so you're fit for the master's use? And that's exactly what I saw him doing in my own youth, going through Helms and Richmond. You know what all the tests was? My whole life in those teen years was cutting me away from this influence, cutting me away from this. I like to run with these guys. You've got to leave them. I like to do this. You've got to give it up. Uh, I like rhythm and blues. Come on. Don't take that. That's where I bought a, my daddy got me a guitar. I want to play like little Willie John. And then when I got right, I gave him to Jim Snyder, made a soul singer out of him. Because I love that music. I love this. I love that. And, and it seemed like, God, when are you going to quit pruning? Is there anything I can do as a teenager that won't offend you? And he kept saying, I'm setting you apart to put pure water. I'm going to use you to be poured out on your generation, and I'm cleaning, cleaning you up. I'm getting you away from that which would defile you. And my old daddy said, you can't handle skunks without smelling like them, and I want you to quit running with skunks. 
I'm setting you apart. I'm setting you apart. But it gets lonely. I'll force you to run with me. I'll force you to run with me. I'd rather be a vessel of honor in the potter's hand than to partake of all the carrion of this world. It just dirties, soils, and James says, keep yourself unspotted from the world that God may use you as a virgin bride. You see, when you get engaged, you can't flirt anymore with any other man. And some of you need to quit flirting with the world. I thought you were engaged. I thought Christ was the love of your life. Why in the world do you flirt with this world? Is God using you? He says it over and over. Then, look at 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul said, because the Corinthians really were hard on Paul. They called him ugly, uh, short, non-eloquent. This church, uh, there was a despicable crowd there that did not like Paul, and uh, they were rough on him. Uh, I've never done 2 Corinthians because it's the wailing, it's the wailing song of a minister that a church despises. And I've never had the courage to preach it. It's full of uh, great truths, but it's the most pathetic ministerial epistle because Paul is beat to a pulp. But verse 7, but we have this treasure, and he's talking about the gospel, in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. What is he saying? We're just containers of a glorious gospel. And that uh, don't, don't exult over men. Men are frail. We're passing vessels. Uh, different degrees of strength, different degrees of abilities. But Paul said, the treasure that I hold is what I want you to see, not the container it's in. You're just a container. The treasure is Christ. The treasure is the gospel. So let us not be about men. Let us not be admiring men so much. Let's say this treasure gets sweeter, more precious, more valuable as the years go by. This, we're containers of the treasure. And so he uh, is telling us, I've come as the master transformer. I can turn water to wine. And I want to tell you, as I begin my messianic ministry, I'm here to change lives. I'm here to take them from the emptiness, the ruin. I've come to bring the joy back. I've come to bring the party of salvation. I've come to invite them to the messianic festival that will be held for a thousand years as the bride celebrates with the groom. As I uh, was thinking about this message, out of nowhere, uh, the great poem by Myra Welch came to my mind. 
Myra Welch was a woman who had arthritis so bad, uh, she was a poetry writer, that she, uh, to type her poetry, she took two pencils and used the eraser endings to type with, to type it out. She was at a meeting, and uh, someone said something that inspired her, and she uh, sat down in 30 minutes, typed out uh, this famous classic uh, poem that uh, I feel embarrassed even sharing it with you, but I'm convinced many young people have never heard it. It goes this way. "'Twas battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it scarcely worth his while to waste much time on the old violin, but held it up with a smile. "'What am I bidding, good folks?' he cried. Who'll start the bidding for me? A dollar, a dollar, then two, only two, two dollars, and who'll make it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice, going for three, but no. From the room far back, a gray-haired man came forward and picked up the bow. Then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening the loose strings, he played a melody pure and sweet as a caroling angel sings. The music ceased, and the auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, What am I bid for the old violin? And he held it up with the bow. A thousand dollars, and who'll make it two? Two thousand, and who'll make it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice, and going and gone, said he. The people cheered, but some of them cried. We do not quite understand what changed its worth. Swift came the reply. The touch of a master's hand. And many a man with life out of tune and battered and scarred with sin is auctioned cheap to the thoughtless crowd, much like the old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, and he travels on. He is going once and going twice. He's going and almost gone. But the master comes, and the foolish crowd never can quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that's wrought by the touch of the master's hand. I'm here to say if Jesus can turn water to wine, he can turn the wastewater of this world that's filled your life all of these years, full of sin, full of immorality, full of drugs, full of one sin after another, whatever you've been containing all these years, he's wanting to speak to your life and say, I want to get rid of the wastewater and put new wine in you. I'm going to fill you with my spirit. I'm going to forgive you of your sins, for I'm the master, and if I can just but touch your life, you're going to become a container of eternal life. No longer the old life, the old life with nothing. I'm going to change you and transform you into something you could have never dreamed of. And we are here as witnesses. He did it for us. May you become a vessel, a vessel of mercy. We're going to sing a song. Uh, there is a river. I want you to hear this. If you're here without Christ, uh, I want you to hear this song as being sung to you, that uh, you might be like the woman at the well 
dry, full of shame, full of uh, wrong choices, looking for love in all the wrong places, married to six men, and finally decided to shack up. She gave up. But Jesus met her in John 4, and we're going to sing what Jesus would offer to you. Listen to it. 